The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Joe Lewis, executive producer of 100 Foot Wave, a six-part HBO series that has been nominated for a 2022 Emmy for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Series. Joe Lewis is the Emmy, Golden Globe, Peabody, and Tony-winning CEO of Amplify Pictures, an independent television studio. In addition to 100 Foot Wave, Joe has produced series including Fleabag, Transparent, and Too Old to Die Young. He also co-produced A Strange Loop, winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Drama and the Tony Award for Best Musical. Prior to starting Amplify, Joe oversaw comedy, drama, casting, and mixed reality at Amazon Studios. The series is directed by Chris Smith, who directed the amazing documentary American Movie, along with many other really interesting and very well-made documentaries. I really enjoyed talking to Joe, though, because he brought the perspective of a producer, and in his case, an executive producer, to this conversation. And in fact, it's Joe's personal connection through, get this, his wife's second cousin to a couple of the primary people in the film, Nicole and her brother CJ, that made this film take place. Nicole is the wife of the surfer Garrett McNamara, and CJ is her brother and is also a big wave surfer. I have always been fascinated by the world of big wave surfing. It's endlessly engaging to watch film footage of these incredible surfers who seemingly against all odds are able to ride these unbelievably giant waves. But talking to Joe, what was interesting is to find out that Garrett McNamara and his wife, Nicole, said we have one condition when we start out, which is we don't want to make a surf movie. So they understood, as of course did the film team, that the richness and the vitality of the series, while infused with plenty of great surfing footage, was going to come from the characters and the character development and the story developing over time. All of those things happened. I was also really surprised to hear that this started out as a feature, then became the six-part series, and actually is going to have a second season, which they're working on now. Lots of nuggets from Joe. He also brings a perspective to making independent television that I found fascinating. So I'm a big fan of the series. Can't wait for the second season. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Joe Lewis, executive producer of 100 Foot Wave. Joe Lewis, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Why do you make documentaries? I love documentaries and I make documentaries, but I don't just make documentaries. I've worked a ton in scripted television, on Broadway, even in some short form stuff, in audio. I earlier even tried to work in fine arts and visual arts and land art and some other crazy things. You know, I just love making things. 
when the surfer is in 100 foot wave talking about being in the barrel and time slowing down and being able to focus. For me, that's the process of making things. And I will say out of all those different fields that I've named, I feel like documentary has the best process, the most exciting process. And the one that for me feels like the equivalent, you know, not always, but sometimes when you're in the barrel and you're just editing the hundredth cut of something and you're excited about it as ever. And I just love the process of documentary, the detective part of it, the evolution of the material, the fact that you can put it together a lot of different ways. And the way we made this show really embrace that and the way Chris Smith, the incredible director who made it all works, works like that. How did a hundred foot wave come together? If you had told me three and a half years ago that I was going to be making an ongoing doc series, it would maybe a little bit of a shock. Nicole McNamara, one of the two leads, Garrett McNamara's wife, and her brother, CJ Macias, who's also a main character in the documentary, they are my wife's second cousin. They grew up in South Florida together. I had never met them before I had heard about this big wave surfing cousin and just had no contact. One day they called my wife and asked if I'd be willing to get on the phone and give them some advice. And so I jumped on the phone and they had an idea in their head for a doc that wasn't 100 foot wave, but was similar. I just told them everything I thought and hung up and thought that was it. And then soon after they asked me if I wanted to produce it. At the time, I was producing almost primarily scripted TV. You know, I produced Fleabag around then. I produced the final season of Transparent and a great show called Too Old to Die Young. All, you know, what I'll call filmmaker-driven premium series, all scripted. I wasn't thinking about documentaries. I had worked on two docu-series earlier. I did a great show about the Grateful Dead called Long Strange Trip with Amir Barlev directing and worked on an incredible series called The New Yorker Presents that's on Amazon. Lots of incredible short doc filmmakers, but it wasn't the main thing I, I was thinking about, but they asked me to produce it. There was something captivating about Garrett and the story from the beginning. So I said, yes. Then you start the process of producing it. I'd met Chris Smith years before through our mutual friend. We were at Sundance and we both needed a break from movies. So with our friend, we just decided to go skiing during Sundance, which by the way, is a great tip because the mountains are pretty empty and it's a pretty nice time of year. And we met, Chris was actually taking a break from filmmaking and working on some entrepreneurial stuff at that point. I was already a massive fan of his from American Movie, which was another really important early touchstone of mine. And stayed in touch and loved his work that he had been doing and just reached out to him about it. He thought it was interesting. He was coming to LA. We got on a Zoom with Garrett and Nicole and had a short, great conversation. And then two weeks later, we started shooting the show. We met them in June 2019. We started shooting the show in July 2019. And we pretty much have not stopped making the show since then. Was this always intended to be a series? Definitely not. Funny enough, the original intention was to do an IMAX documentary. Originally, when we knew very little, we thought we'd be able to go shoot for a little bit with someone would get the 100 foot wave and that there was no way we could miss it. We would be there with IMAX cameras. We really shot the entire first season or the 2019-2020 surf season in Nazareth thinking it was going to be a feature. During the time that we were shooting that, Garrett said, I've got a box of old stuff you guys should look at and sent us truly a box of CD-ROMs, DVDs, hard drives, just magazines of the collected things thrown in the corner of his house. And on one of those hard drives, 
was three years worth of footage from 2010 to 2013 shot by a great cinematographer named George Leal, who's from Nazare, and shot the entire first three years of the project. For people who haven't seen it, Nazare is the town in Portugal where the show primarily takes place. It's the home of the largest and most accessible wave in the world. But it was a fishing village before 2010. And it's when the locals there recruited Garrett to come to town. And he came with his now wife, Nicole, and figured out if it was surfable, how to surf it. They had shot that entire first three-year period. So we thought we were making a show that took place in the present. And then we unearthed this incredible, you know, the documentary gods give you a thumbs up sometimes. And that was one of those. So we, now we had a season and we had a ton of archive and the season wrapped and we put it all together. And at that point, it was still going to be a feature. We had a five and a half hour first cut because the story just started sprawling from there. I should say it was originally going to be a movie about Garrett and Cotty, who's another one of our leads, and CJ coming back from these injuries and looking for giant waves. And it morphed as we really got into their goals and the process of what they do. And so we had a five and a half hour first cut. And usually when you have that, there's a lot of stuff that you're just waiting to get through that you can cut and watching it, Chris and I both felt just there wasn't a lot there to cut out. So Chris had the brilliant idea. Why don't we just put end titles and main titles on the assemble every 45 minutes or so and see what it looked like as a series. He was just coming out of Tiger King, which he produced. And so we did that and it worked incredibly. That's probably three quarters of the structure of the show now came from putting that original assemble into different episodes. Compliment to Chris too. It was just a willingness to try something that sounded crazy at the time. Now it seems like that's what it should always have been. And is that what was pitched? We didn't pitch this in a normal way. So this show was made in a pretty atypical way for series in Hollywood in that we made it like an independent film. We made six episodes on our own. We got to the point of rough cut. And then we didn't so much as pitch it is we just shared some of the show with all the major distributors. We were fortunate that people were excited about it. We met with Lisa and Nancy and Bentley at HBO, and from the beginning, they were super clear that how they felt about it. They were clearly great creatively. We all look up to them and HBO docs before, and they became our partner, but we didn't pitch it in a traditional way. We made the show and then showed it to people, and it's a real fundamental difference. And I'm really proud of the fact that it proved out this model for independent television that I'm super interested in. There's a really interesting future for entertainment where there's a model to make TV shows without starting at the traditional place. And what would be the traditional place? How TV shows are made, that someone comes up with an idea and then they find a television network who has money and they tell them that idea. And that television network has heard thousands or tens of thousands ideas. And you know, you hope that they're going to say yours and you know how good yours is and you just hope they see that in you. That's the normal way of doing it. This way, it starts in the same place. You're sure your idea is great and you just go make it and go prove it to them. Docs lend themselves to it more than scripted just because they tend to cost less. As a creator, as a filmmaker, you're always looking for a different path to yes. The fewer paths to yes there are, the more constraints there are in art and probably the more lim limitations that are imposed on it. The show helped find a different path to yes. And there's a million things where that helps in the making of it, where you're not rushed and you have time and freedom to do what you think is best. As much as anything, I'm most proud of that, that we figured out a different way to make TV with this show. I could be wrong, but for me, I think that sense really does come through in that it, it does feel like an auteur-driven series. I hope that's true. I always want to throw in, I don't think auteur series has to, I think things can be wildly commercial 
and globally appealing. And that's as important to me and Chris as anything else. And it goes back to Garrett and Nicole. When I first met them, the only thing they said is we just don't want to make a surf film. I think our goal from the beginning was make something that is filmmaker driven. It's everything I want to make is driven by some great genius, but that is really for everyone and for everyone around the world. So that's a really interesting point that they made from the get-go, which is we don't want to make a surf film. What did they mean by that? I think they just didn't want to make something that was primarily intended for the world of surfers. There's a lot of surf films. Neither Chris nor I are surfers. We need a lot of things explained to us. There's only so many details that we can handle. And I think if we're fortunate, maybe that helps us translate the world to the outside. I understand it way more now than I did three years ago. We look at it as interested outsiders. And I think Garrett and Nicole wanted to make something for people who weren't in the world of big wave surfing. It's a hard sport because you can never time it. It's hard to really get an audience for it. And it's an incredible sport. And I think by putting it in a narrative format, it really has, I hope, helped open it up to the world. I love a great surfing doc. And by surfing doc, I mean a documentary that isn't just about surfing. It's a more general interest film that talks about other things and is about really something other than surfing, even though surfing is at the heart of it. And I would put a hundred foot wave in the category of the great ones now. Yeah, that means a lot. It's really about what's left when you take away the surfing. And that's the thing that I was attracted to. And I'll guess Chris was too. For similar reasons, I also love an incredibly well-made documentary about elite climbers and skateboarders is another category. Those things trigger your own central nervous system and the relief of getting through it. You know, Jimmy and Chai and Free Solo, I, I just think it doesn't get much better. And I have felt more fear watching that than probably I have, you know, most times in my life. Yeah. And I also feel like big wave surfing shares some things in common with elite professional climbing and skateboarding as well. Even specific things like the waves remind me of vert skateboarding, yeah. the height and the risk from nature at its most challenging remind me of free soloing. I also think there's some clear similarities between the athletes. Can you talk about what makes big wave surfing and big wave surfers unique and also some of what they may share with other extreme sports and athletes. I'll say again, I'm not a surfer or big wave surfer. I'll say what I've observed. I don't know how it makes them different than rock climbers or skateboarders, but I will say a lot of the big wave surfers do skateboard. Justine DuPont, an incredible French surfer and her boyfriend, Fred David, have a great mini half pipe in their backyard that a lot of the surfers use. A lot of them train on skateboards, on trampolines to try to do the kind of tricks that Kai Lenny and Lucas Chumbo do. There's definitely some overlap. All these things seem impossible to me, but when you add in the element of the mountain is moving and the mountain is going to fall at some point. That's the part where I, I start to just, I start to just not being able to understand how you start doing it, but I've seen it. You start small and it's like anything you put in 10,000 or 20,000 hours and work your way up. If I've taken anything from it is how much control you can have over your own fear. If you actually contemplate it. I think that's something that is extremely unique about these surfers is the mental part of it. And just the incredible amount of training. This isn't something that you can go out and do because you're an extremely talented athletic surfer. It is endless work. And then you throw in, you know, a lot of the big waves around the world at Jaws and Mavericks. 
they break in the same spot at the same time and go the same direction. Nazare is bigger in size than all of those, and it is completely unpredictable where the wave's going to break, how it's going to break, what shape it's going to be, where it's going to put you. There's, a, I think, a part of these surfers that want to have a greater understanding of the ocean, see something bigger and more powerful in it that I think, I can only speculate, makes them feel more comfortable. I also just think I've surfed on a three-foot wave and the focus that it took on my part not to fall off was incredible. And that's three feet. The focus and the amount of noise of the world that comes down when you're on those waves, I imagine, must be miraculous. Garrett McNamara, who's the son of this movie around whom everything orbits, says in episode one, everybody thought I was crazy, but they don't realize I had a plan with each swell. And when he said this, it did remind me of something that Alex Honnold, the incredible climber who's featured in the Oscar winning doc free solo said, basically paraphrasing what Alex said, he said, everyone asks if you're crazy to take these risks, do you have a death wish? And his answer is, no, I'm not crazy because I'm very well prepared and I have a plan and I don't do it if the risks are too great. Just as with elite climbers, the risks faced by big wave surfers are very real. And throughout the series, we see Garrett and all the other surfers considering those risks. How do they manage that risk, though? What is the process that Garrett and his cohorts follow to decide if the risks are manageable or just too great? I should add, I don't think they're crazy at all either. I don't think Garrett's crazy. You have to remember Garrett and some of the other subjects are the best big wave surfers in the world, but they're also the best big wave safety experts in the world. Those aren't two different jobs. They're not out there assuming someone else is going to save them. The development of inflatable wetsuits, of padding in wetsuits comes out of Garrett and comes out of people like Garrett, and they continue to evolve. I've seen designs for wetsuits that Garrett's trying to put together now that have oxygen built into them. So if you get held under for a long time, you'll be able to breathe underwater. You could pose the question is, are the world's big wave safety experts crazy for going out in big waves? And when you put it that way, it stops sounding as insane. And I agree with you. I certainly don't think they're crazy. I will say, though, you know, as Nazare gets bigger, now it's a destination. And now Garrett makes it look easy. And then the 10 people after him also make it look easy. I think the danger, if there's any out there now, is people who are overestimating their own abilities and are out there and haven't put in the same amount of work. And, and it's a small world and they look out for each other, but it's completely unpredictable. And Garrett, especially again, and a lot of other surfers there have really put a lot of efforts into like how the city, how the WSL, how people look at safety and how important it is. And all those organizations, safety is the number one thing to them, but it's really a group effort to keep everyone safe out there, including camera people that are out there too. You know, there are people on the crew who are taking every bit as much risk to get beautiful shots of these surfers. And that's necessary for the ecosystem. They have to coexist. This is how the servers become known as people shoot them on these waves. Nicole McNamara at one point talks about this symbiotic relationship between surfers and surf photographers. Can you tell us about your approach to the cinematography with this film, which I'm sure must have been quite elaborate? Chris really set the look for the film, definitely from the beginning, how things look doing things differently, pushing the limits of what visuals can be is really important to me. 
And on the Verite portion, we really just want to make sure that we capture everything. There's no story editing we do. We truly shoot everything that happens. For season two, we've shot over a million gigabytes of footage, not a million hours, but a million gigabytes over the last two years in Nazare, and just try to capture the world and capture it in a beautiful widescreen way. And then there's the challenge of shooting in the ocean. You're going to need a crew of eight to 12 people, maybe even more, and spin those people up on a moment's notice, have people in the water, in the air, all over the land, and try to find this thing that you don't even know if it'll happen or where it'll happen. The approach there is we wanted to get the best images ever of people in the ocean. You know, there's images that have been in my head and I think in Chris's head since the beginning, and we're still trying to get those and get closer to the servers and always safety is the most important thing. But how do you just capture what they do out there? Sometimes I think you can't even tell how massive the waves are until you're actually out there. And we're just trying to get that feeling. There's an amazing shot that I think is the last one in the episode one title sequence of Justine Dupont on a wave at the WSL. Laurent Pujol shot at Toe Cardoso was his driver. His driver is as important. And you just see this monster wave chasing Justine. It's one thing to see a surfer going down in the front of it and not falling. It's the other thing when you have a widescreen image of this wave reaching for someone and them just outrunning it. Might be my favorite image of the show. Yeah, and there are many, and it is amazing when you watch those waves literally seem to be chasing the surfer. Yeah. When you see the shadow on the waves from the thing going after them, I never get tired of it, and it never ceases to bring up that that terror in you. Surely one of the most prominent characters in the film is Nazare herself. The town, the people, the waves, and now the big wave surf community that comes there every season. You've been to Nazare. You were there for the shoots. Can you talk about what makes it special? It's an amazing place. There are some places around the world that for reasons I can't even attempt to guess at, but the people who live there, the geography, the climate, amazing things tend to happen. I made a TV show in Marfa, Texas once that was a wild show. And I think Marfa attracts creative types and those creative types bounce off each other and create new things. And I think Nazare has that in space. It's hard to imagine it's in the series, but I think Almeni, it calls it, you know, an arena built for surfing. There are amazing waves in the world. There's a place called Cortez Bank that's much closer to me right now in Los Angeles than Nazare is. But Cortez Bank is 90 miles off the coast of Southern California. If you go out there and the waves don't break, you have a four to eight hour trip home. Nazare, if the waves don't break, you can go get breakfast and see how they look in a few hours. I don't understand how this lighthouse that, by the way, was dormant for a long time, is perfectly perched on this cliff above the world's most perfect wave. It truly seems like it was placed there for that purpose several hundred years ago. And then it's just the people and their openness. And Portugal is an amazing country. And the whole project came out of people in the town. They wanted to drive tourism to Portugal and they started reaching out to people. Garrett was one of them. And everything that's happened is because of one or two people in that town had a crazy idea and it worked. Given how perfect Nazare is, it's still a bit of a mystery to me why it went so long in the shadows, as it were, and escaped being one of the key big wave surf sites. I don't understand it totally either, except the world's a big place and you can't find everything. And the surfers are all convinced that there's probably a bigger wave out there that no one's come on to yet. People did surf there. There's 
the giant big wave part of Nazare, which is North Beach. And then there's Nazare Beach. North Beach is north of the lighthouse. Nazare Beach is south. You can go look at, I think it's in the endless summer. They stop by Nazare and surf on some smaller waves there. And apologies if I'm getting the film wrong. And then there are people, Ross Clark Jones, a big wave surfer, our cinematographer I mentioned, Laurent Pujol, when he was surfing back in 2005, I think, and it's in the series, came out to look at the waves. And people knew they were there at the time. They just didn't think they had powerful enough jet skis. They just didn't feel like they they were ready to go out there. And I think it's just, it was technology being at the right spot and the right person. It was technology like inflatable wetsuits and jet skis. And then the right person who randomly bounced into that technology and was invited to the right place at the right time to utilize that. And it's just this perfect storm of things that took hundreds of years to happen. Those waves have been happening there for thousands of years. And we just happened to be lucky that in 2010, that was the year someone conquered them. And why was Garrett McNamara the guy? What is it about Garrett that made him the person to move this forward and make it happen? I think there is a search for adventure. There is a search for bigger waves. Garrett is truly looking for a hundred foot wave. It wasn't invented for the show. It is an innate desire that is decades long. And Nazare was a possible solution to that. It is a real desire for whatever reason why that's the goal, not 101 feet or 200 feet. That's been the goal. And Nazare was a place that made it possible he was at that point of his life. I can't speak to earlier. Maybe he had conquered any fear that it takes to go out and do something that hasn't been done before. It was, who knows, it was probably part luck that he had his email address online and that he answered an email from someone that he didn't know and he was open. And it's just the perfect combination of conquering his fear, being open to new people and ideas and new places and a willingness to just go try it. And I don't think he was worried about failing which is an important part of it too. Let's talk a bit more and get a bit deeper into Garrett. He's a very compelling figure. He really carries the series without ever being overly intrusive in it. There's a lot of talk in the film about his leadership abilities. We see his relationship with his wife, Nicole, and obviously her role is documented. His relationship with other surfers as well. His passion and vision for the sport are clear. There's so much more to him, though. There's his frequent hugs and occasional goofy facial expressions, yeah. which, you know, bring kind of a deeper emotional quality to him. I agree with everything you said. I also want to just get across that Garrett's one of the funnest people I know and funny. I mentioned working on Long Strange Trip, the Grateful Dead documentary that Amir Barlow directed. And I weirdly saw parallels between Jerry Garcia and Garrett. Both of them want to have fun in life. And I think both of them have had parts of their life that were not fun. And I think when that happens, maybe that causes you to realize the value of fun and get out of situations you don't want to be in. And I think that's just a really important part to his personality too, is both wanting to have fun and wanting to share that and really wanting to help other people too. What was the collaborative relationship like between the film team and Garrett? And I'll also ask between you and Nicole, because she's almost as central as he is. Garrett and Nicole have been among the best partners I've ever had working on a series in that they are just completely open. They don't try to 
control or guide the process they have. You know, the most important thing is just like I've learned this over a lot of series is just a trust between everybody that's in key roles on it. From the beginning, they really trusted Chris and I with their story, with their history, with their hard drives. You know, you can imagine just sending a box of all the pictures and videos of your life to someone and say, do something with it. So they were enormously trusting. They're enormously open to filming and they have this and CJ in the show definitely has this and Cotty and really everyone is just the ability to be themselves on camera. Even right now with a zoom, I'm self-conscious and aware and they really, I've been there when the cameras are turned on and off and there's no change at all. They were incredible partners to it. Garrett also is a wild card in the best way in that he might just go off and surf and not tell you. It's one of the challenges of shooting there. And, you know, we solved it by just having camera people live with them. You just got to be ready for anything truly at all hours of the day. And I think it's that responsible part mixed with the wild card part that makes for a great subject. And the exact same goes for Nicole, who's utterly amazing and open and herself on camera. I don't know that Garrett, there's no way to know, but I think a big part of him surfing Nazareth, maybe it would never have happened if he hadn't met Nicole. And I think Nicole also, you know, you can be around her and she makes you focus on things that you're grateful for. She is great at just visualizing what you want, what you want to have happen, whether it's on a wave or that you want to make a project that, you know, is not a surf film and just helping that come to life. And they've just been great collaborators and partners and at the risk of overselling it, just everything you could want from subjects from a documentary. And they're endlessly interesting. That's the other part. They're also great storytellers because you mentioned, you know, coming across this trove of footage from 2010 to 2013 that George Leal had shot, but you've got to make up a lot of ground in storytelling between not actually going all the way back to 2010 to carry it to when you start shooting in 2019 and they help fill in those gaps. It's something a lot of surfers have in common. It's like telling the proverbial story about the big fish that you caught. I think part of surfing is communicating what you've done. A lot of times it's done in pictures and video, but just being able to describe it and talk about it and tell it to other people is part of the job too. Counterintuitively for a sport where you're by yourself in the middle of the ocean, it helps probably not to be introverted to be a big wave surfer. Your point there about being good storytellers takes me to another question. There's a great sequence that comes, I think, at the beginning of episode four. Rodrigo Kosha, his poetry I'll just call it what it is uh, that that starts that episode. It's beautiful. so lyrical and beautiful and natural. Chris, the director, and all of you did a marvelous job of capturing the poetry of big wave surfing itself, but also literal spoken poetry of these surfers. Can you talk a bit more about the articulate way that the surfers have of speaking about the ocean and their relationship to it? If you have a really deep understanding of something and think about it a lot, it could be a movie that you love that suddenly starts speaking to you about your own life because you're focused on that movie because you're so compelled. It could be a great book. It could be honor just getting metaphors for their own life because they're thinking about running and the world moving by. I think the surfers are just utterly focused fully on the ocean, especially in the moments when it could kill them. And the metaphors also are not buried super deep. 
they're on the surface and I just think they have their full focus on this thing and their life is the ocean. And it's only natural that you take these lessons from it. Again, I'm not a big wave surfer at all, but you just look at the way that they tackle problems, that they're not afraid of things that could kill them, that they're labor to understand the thing that they want to do. And then they talk about it as if it was the most natural thing in the world. And I love listening to Rodrigo Kosha talk about surfing and a lot of surfers. Rodrigo, by the way, he just lost the record, but he had the world record for the biggest wave. He beat Garrett's record a few years ago. And I just think their understanding of the ocean translates to their understanding of life. And they've let us in to hear that. The big wave surfer, Andrew Cotton, known as Cotty, who's one of your major characters. He arrives at Nazare, I think in 2010. And Garrett takes him under his wing. Cotty's just an extremely likable guy. He's modest, a total team player, loves his family. But it's also clear he's very ambitious and driven to succeed in the big wave world. And he's also one of the best big wave surfers in the world. I I want to throw that in there. Absolutely. And Garrett's always saying he's hungry. (laughs) I love hearing... I don't know what it is, but (laughs) Garrett always saying about Cotty, he's hungry. Um, Besides being a likable presence in the film and being one of the world's top big wave surfers, just what does his persona and presence represent in the film? What's attracted to me about the subject from the beginning is just whether it's Garrett or Cotty, it's just people who spend decades of their life trying to chase something that might not exist and do something that might be impossible. Again, I don't want to speculate too much, but I just, I find it incredible. The same as I do about Garrett, Cotty is just relentless. By the way, the same way that Chris Smith makes movies and TV shows, I can say from producing Fleabag, the same way Phoebe Waller-Bridge writes and approaches Fleabag is just this, you know, relentless pursuit of something incredible. And I think Andrew Cotton is in the same breath as those people for what he does. He's just utterly relentless about it. And I think that's wonderful to see. And I honestly, I don't think he even understands how good he is, how important he is to the sport. And I think that's also endearing. And I want to see him succeed as I'm sitting here doing this interview and when I'm watching the show and maybe he will be the one to get the hundred foot wave and nothing would make me or Garrett or anyone happier than to see that. I think one of the great things about the series is you really get us in a position where we're rooting for all of these people, none more than Cotty. Definitely one of the standout aspects of the film is the way it depicts relationships and the relationship between Cotty and Garrett is a special one. Can you talk a bit about the kind of the special bond that they have? And I'll also just throw in here quickly, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is after Garrett tells Cotty, hey, that great wave that you just rode in the last minute of the competition at the Big Toe, uh, nobody shot it, so it can't be considered in the results. And it's the one moment where Cotty can't bear to be in Garrett's presence. He has to walk away. Great scene. That's heartbreaking. I don't, I don't know if he was walking away from Garrett, if he just needed to process on his own for a second. I think they have an incredible relationship that's just built on trust, mutual respect. I think like a lot of great leaders, Garrett finds younger people that are super talented and just gives them a shot based on nothing but his own instinct. I can draw parallels to making TV and film with that and Garrett met Cotty, as you can see in the show, and met Al Menny, who he was working with at the time, and gave them a shot to step up. Not that they weren't doing incredible things before, but 
you know, to work with a surfer at his level. And they just took the opportunity and ran with it. To this day, I just think they're maybe the best two toe partners, Garrett. You know, he doesn't surf every swell necessarily like he used to, but every swell, he's ready to go out there and put Cadi on waves. He's ready to put a lot of people on waves. It's one of his favorite things to do, but I think Cadi and CJ maybe more than any of them. Speaking of CJ, we have to talk about him. He's amazing. He's yeah. Nicole's brother. You're related to him, as you told us. Through marriage and a couple cousins removed, but yeah. Related through marriage. <laughs> so distantly related through marriage. He's a sometime big wave surfer himself. At times, he's Garrett's surfing partner. He's a wonderful, complex guy. I think his Instagram page maybe captures his complexity very succinctly, which says, athlete slash holistic lifestyle advocate. What made you and Chris and the team ultimately committing to giving CJ such an anchoring role in the film? Because I could easily have seen other filmmakers saying, you know, this guy's funny. He's kind of an interesting sidelight, but not really tracking on his story. But yeah. you guys he's did. Magnetic presence. He's charismatic. He's unbelievably articulate about surfing and how it translates to life. I've said a few times it wasn't a surf show. So the show isn't about following the best big wave surfers in the world trying to find the first hundred foot wave or surf the first hundred foot wave, but it's about the people who are out there trying to find it. And CJ is one of them. And I just find him endlessly compelling and in a different way than Cotty, I think nothing would make Garrett or other people happier than seeing CJ get a hundred foot wave. Also, I think Nicole is convinced that Garrett will not catch the hundred foot wave unless CJ's in the water with him. You know, he's going to be there when it happens. And I just couldn't imagine the story without CJ. And I'm incredibly excited for people to see him in season two. A lot happened with CJ last year in Nazareth. And I'm really excited for people to see him step it up and see what happened after. The music by Philip Glass is particularly striking. I'm a huge fan of his music and his film music. I think it's extremely effective here. How did you come to this decision to want to have Philip Glass music in your film and how did you approach him? Like I mentioned earlier, in June 2019, Chris and I Zoomed with Garrett and Nicole. In July 2019, we started shooting the show. And in probably August 2019, Chris one day said, I got it. Philip Glass has to do the music for this. I don't know where the thought came from him. We had barely scratched the surface of what we had shot and we hadn't started anything together. But speaking of an auteur, speaking of a vision, there was never another option. Thankfully, Philip Glass and his team were very receptive. We edited it to that and it remains in the show now, but 100% Chris's idea from the outset. And I also just love it. Were these new arrangements of existing music or new music or combination or what was it? These were all existing tracks. Gotcha. Very effective. It seems to me as if it was scored, you know, it's just one of those things where it just, they just seem meant for each other. And clearly that speaks to Philip Glass's genius, but also Chris's for recognizing that in a complete void. One of the things I really admire about the filmmaking is the way you handled the episode breaks and also the way you depicted the big wipeouts, the key wipeouts. With the wipeouts, sometimes you build to them suspensefully. Other times you introduce them, come back later and fully develop them. And at least in one case, you just kind of spring it on us. I think the situation where Cotty's big wipeout. Also episode four with that great opening with Rodrigo, that amazing footage of his wipeout. 
so can you talk about the creative approach to the episode breaks and to depicting the wipeouts? God, I wish I could say there were rules. It would be so helpful for me to hear someone else's rules. But we did a thousand cuts of the show and tried them every which way. And this was the best version, you know, not to go too far into art, but there's a great book by Robert Irwin. I think it's called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing You Saw. And in part of it, he talks about just moving a straight line up and down across a painting for weeks or months to try to find the perfect spot for it. I think when you're a filmmaker or any kind of artist who makes something, there's a feeling you get when something, whether it's a painted line or a cut to black at the end of the episode that just feels like it's in the perfect place. I don't know that they're all in the perfect place, but they're all really good. And HBO was also a huge part of that. While we got the episodes to rough cuts on their own, we finished the show with HBO. And again, I want to mention Lisa and Nancy who run HBO Docs, Bentley who runs HBO Sports. They really were great in coming in and helping us looking at the episodes from people who didn't know as much and just experts on story and structure on their own. And through hundreds of cuts and a group effort, the episode breaks ended up where they are. After Garrett sustains not one, but two injuries on a trip to Indonesia, he starts to think twice about continuing to big wave surf. But what I notice, and certainly Nicole does, is that even after thinking twice, pretty much always says, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to surf. And in the hospital, Nicole even says you guys and your waves. And to me, that kind of pretty much says it all. Are these guys just boys who will never grow up or know when to hang it up? I think they're people who have just found what makes them happy. I don't think Garrett will ever hang it up. He might be driving and then he might be just surfing waves that are easier to get to. I don't think it's about not growing up. You know, I think they figured something out. And I will say for an interesting doc story, there's some lesson here. We had a whole hard drive of footage from G-Land in Indonesia when that injury, which is really important to the story, happened. And that drive, for some reason, wasn't backed up and was in a backpack in Nazare and went missing. We had a storyline that we shot and cut out about everyone trying to track down the footage and asking everyone for it. It, it. And we never found the footage. And at the time, you know, you're devastated because the only footage of this thing that you had shot is completely gone. We managed to get some other shots that people had taken around there and had found some other footage. And I love the way that it came together now, just for anyone out there who loses footage or has some giant obstacle. And it goes back to your original question about why do I make docs or why do I like docs? I just think it's the ability to hit a huge obstacle like that and come out of it with an incredible version still is amazing. But if anybody listening happens to run across this backpack, please. If you find that footage, we're still making the show. We would love it back. So now at Nazare, you know, there's jet skis everywhere. There might be 30 or more out there at any given time. It's become a very crowded surfing spot, obviously. And Cotty makes the comment about Garrett that he's, quote, a victim of his own success, meaning I think, you know, because he was so successful at demonstrating what a great, unique place Nazare is for big wave surfing, people have finally come there in droves. And now Garrett and others like Cotty are never going to be able to go back to the way it was. What are your thoughts on this idea that on some level, the very things that made Nazare so special, its isolation, its lack of throngs of surfers and fans are gone, never going to come back. 
So its specialness in some way may be a little bit tarnished. If you've seen that documentary, Truffle Hunters, there's a great scene in that where one of the older truffle hunters who has a secret truffle spot is talking to someone who's younger and he's refusing to say where his secret spot is. And then he asks him, I'm sure I'm messing this up somehow, but what about when you die? We leave behind where your spot is. And even after he died, he didn't want to give up where his secret spot was. And I find that as compelling dramatically as what happened in Nazareth. But what happened in Nazareth was the exact opposite. Garrett just wanted to share his secret spot with the world. It goes back to, I think, what I was saying before about Garrett seeing the value in fun and wanting to share that with other people. I just think there's something amazing about wanting to share your secret spot with the world. But it is true. It's really crowded out there now, and you can't get every wave, and you don't have it to yourself. But things change, and you can either fight that, which Garrett doesn't do, or you can change with it. By 2019, which is the 10th season of Nazareth, it has become this go-to hotspot for big wave surfing. And it's also become a favorite spot for two great big wave surfers, Maya Gabera and Justine DuPont, who are both women. Maya talks about the discrimination she faced at other big wave spots, such as Hawaii. But at Nazareth, she felt she wasn't being judged for being a woman in the water. Why have women faced such nagging discrimination in big wave surfing? And what makes Nazareth different in that regard? I mean, your first question is a really big one. I'll just say, you know, inherent institutional sexism built in at a lot of levels of our world. And it filters into big wave surfing as it does every other part of our world. But the difference maybe with big wave surfing in Nazareth is... There's no boss of Nazareth. Garrett's not the boss of it. No one's saying, now it's your turn. So anyone who wants to, whether you're a first-time surfer, which would I wouldn't recommend, or someone as incredible as Maya and Justine can just show up and do it. And then it is so impossible that even in the face of deep, inherent institutional sexism, you look at anyone who goes out there and does what they do on waves. And I, it's incredible. And everyone out there respects them, but more than that, I mean, they're just, they're both incredible. The fact is when you're watching from the cliff, it's really even hard to tell who it is out there. Once you start to know maybe what they're wearing or how their stance is, you can tell, but you cannot tell at all who's on the wave, but you can see how they're getting down it, how they're performing on it. And Maya and Justine are as good or better than everyone out there. Yeah, I particularly love watching Justine surf. Your footage of her is extremely beautiful. She is incredible. They're all incredible, but I'm just in awe of her work and dedication and just how much, even how much she improves and works on that. Honestly, also just like how nice and amazing her and Fred and everyone on their team is just very welcoming and open to us. Garrett says at the end of the film, life is the hundred foot wave. How can we, meaning myself and probably 99.99% of the audience as non-big wave surfers relate to the quest for the hundred foot wave? Just don't think Garrett worries if his goal is achievable, but he has found something that makes him happy and something that makes him keep going forward. And that's helped him get past a lot of pain. You can see in the show, I don't need to go into it now, but his childhood was crazy. And I think we all have our own obstacles and trauma. What he's trying to say at the end is if we can all just 
take care of the team around us, find something we want to do, find people that you trust, have a great family if that's what you want, and just try to do something. That's a way to be happy. Funny enough, when we first started talking about this project to people, they would always ask us, what if he doesn't get the 100 foot wave? Or what's the movie if there's no 100 foot wave? And now it just seems like the most ridiculous question in the world because the show is not about the act of surfing the 100 foot wave. Hopefully one day that will be featured in the show, but it's about the act of trying to do it. And to me, that's the lesson I've taken from it. It's like, isn't it? I haven't seen it in a long time, but Jiro Dreams of Sushi, where he's been making the same seven cuts his whole life and hasn't gotten them right yet. I don't know, Jiro, but my guess is the day he gets it right will probably not be his best day. But if anything, it might be the opposite. I just think Garrett's quest will never end. And if he surfs a 100-foot wave, which he could do, I, I don't think it will be so simple as a 110-foot wave. He'll have some other goal. Might be discovering the next one, even though he's already trying to do that now. So... I was going to ask you for an update on Garrett, Nicole, Cotty, and CJ, but hearing that a second season is on the way, I guess my question is, is there any preview you can give us and when can we expect to see it? Not sure when it'll air. It won't be an incredibly long time and it won't be soon. Like I said, we shot over a million gigabytes of footage and we're just finishing putting it together now. The second season is going to cover the last two years in Nazare. And now the show is going to follow a lot more characters. Garrett and Nicole are still a big part and at the center of it. But we're following a lot of characters that you met in season one and a lot of new characters out there. They're all incredible, but in their own way. And Garrett and CJ and Cotty are all back out there trying to find a 100-foot wave along with a lot of their competition. What's up next for you? I have a lot of projects across a bunch of fields going on. I was a co-producer on an incredible show that's on Broadway right now called Strange Loop. I'll give that a push for your listeners that are going to be in New York. We've got a bunch of scripted projects in development. We've got one we're shooting next year in Italy. We've just wrapped another doc series from the incredible filmmaker Samriti Muntara. I don't want to say too much about it yet, but we just wrapped six episodes and it's incredible. And so we're working on that in post and we're working on 100 Foot Wave season two. Wow, that is a lot. You also, I would say, as a team, managed to surf the 100 Foot Wave yourself. The series is remarkable. Can't wait to see season two. I want to congratulate you also on your other work, your multi-varied career and just wish you the best of luck in the Emmys. Thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching. Thanks for having me. I will say, you know, what I love about it too, it's of everything I've made, it's by a factor of a thousand, the most times people have told me that they watch it with their kids or their grandkids or their parents. It's just amazing to hear about people watching it together. I've seen surf camps watching it together. I just think it's this crazy extension of what the Nazare locals wanted at the beginning and what Garrett helped them do, you know, just help bring people together. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem? I'll give two answers, a long one and a short one. So if people have different amounts of time, this will be good. Sub 11 seconds from the filmmaker Baffick about Shikari Richardson, incredible short film, incredible filmmaker. And then a doc called Vernon, Florida, which is a Earl Morris doc from 1980 or 81, which was really the one that shifted the way I saw documentaries. And I feel like it is an Errol Morris movie people don't talk about enough. 
You're a man after my heart. I love Vernon, Florida. Public television is incredible, but it was the first movie that made me just realize you could have comedy and just approach things differently and that I couldn't look away from it. And also I should mention that I just did an interview with Baffick about Sub 11 Seconds and it is available on our podcast. Amazing. Congrats. I recommend everyone watch it. It's really good. He's incredibly talented. 